So Jesus' first sermon was going really well. After a successful teaching tour of, in the synagogues of Galilee, he returned to Nazareth, the town where he was raised. And on the Sabbath, he volunteered to read in the, in the, in the sanctuary, in the sanctuary of the synagogue. Now you have to imagine the people sitting there, they knew he was there and they were really excited to hear this hometown boy speak. Jesus chose a powerful passage from the prophet Isaiah, a passage that speaks of one who comes to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. And when Jesus sat down to preach, everyone was silent. Everyone was waiting. And he did not disappoint. He made the daring proclamation that this reading from Isaiah had been fulfilled in the hearing of all who were there. This is who I am, he told his neighbors, friends, and relatives. This is the work to which God has called me. And the people were impressed. All spoke well of him, Luke writes, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Can't you just see the pride on Mary's face as the women complimented her on her son? Filled with wonder, Jesus' neighbors and friends asked one another, is this not Joseph's son? Hmm. Wonder or incredulity. When I read my, this story, I find myself asking lots and lots of questions. You know, sometimes we feel uncomfortable about asking questions about Scripture. It's the Bible, after all, and we think it's sacred, and we don't think we should question it. But it's okay to ask questions, to wrestle with what we read in the Bible. That's doing theology, and you don't have to have a seminary degree to do it. So ask those questions. So the first question that comes to my mind when I read this passage is, were the people of Nazareth praising Jesus or doubting him? Are they saying, oh, Joseph would be so proud, or who does this son of Joseph think he is? We don't know. But either way, Jesus' response to their comments is equally as puzzling, to say the least. First, he puts words in their mouth. Doubtless, he says to them, you will quote me the parable, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do here in Nazareth the things that we heard you did at Capernaum. And then he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. And as if that wasn't enough, he goes on to remind the people of the stories of two of the most revered prophets of old, the prophet Elijah and his disciple Elisha, who brought help and healing to people who did not believe in God. A poverty-stricken widow in Sidon, which is in modern-day Lebanon, and an enemy soldier from Syria, both of whom were Gentiles, outsiders who did not belong to the people of Israel. And you can find their stories in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Again, I find myself asking questions. What am I missing here? Just what set Jesus off? Why would he provoke those who had known him since he was a child in this way? Does he really mean to antagonize his friends and neighbors? Now, 
it's possible, I guess, that Jesus overheard some of the comments that were made that uh, led him to say these things, but it's almost as if he's trying to stir up trouble, almost as one commentator says, as if Jesus sees where this is going and makes sure it happens. Which leads me to ask, why were the people in the synagogue so offended by Jesus? I mean, his words were not exactly diplomatic, but what so enraged his friends and neighbors that they wanted to throw him off a cliff? Should be a lesson to pastors who go back to their hometowns to preach. So let's look again at Jesus' words. Doctor, cure yourself. Do you hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum? Jesus seems to understand that though they speak well of him at first, the people of Nazareth will soon expect him to demonstrate in tangible ways that Isaiah's prophecy truly has been fulfilled to prove that he can indeed bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed especially to these particular oppressed. Like all the rest of Israel, the people of Nazareth live under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Want to give the oppressed freedom? How about starting with us? Let's see you defeat the Romans. Go for it. But I think that their anger arises from a deeper issue and a greater challenge. I think that the people of Nazareth decide that if Jesus, one of their own, truly has such power, then he should use that power to help them. If Jesus performed miracles in Nazareth, then he should perform them in Nazareth as well. In fact, he should have done them as Nazareth first, because after all, he's our prophet. We are the ones who helped raise him. And surely we're entitled to reap the benefits of his power before anyone else. We deserve it, and we deserve it more. I think that Jesus did indeed see where things were going. But he doesn't get his folks riled up for the fun of it. Instead, he wants to shake them out of their sense of privilege and wake them up to see the truth that God's promises, power, and mercy are not just for Israel, not just for Nazareth, not just for a chosen few, but that God's grace is also for people from Sidon and Syria and Capernaum. God's grace is for all, including those whose existence makes us uncomfortable. We humans have this persistent proclivity to draw lines and circles and divide ourselves into us and them. It's a tendency that causes us to treat others as less than human and leads us to protect ourselves by building walls, setting boundaries, putting up barriers, physical and otherwise. It's a tendency that causes us to avoid or reject those who are different and thus robs us of the rich diversity of the human experience. This is what Jesus exposes with his uncomfortable words our sense of entitlement and the prejudice that blinds us to the worth of others. And our fear, oh, our deep-seated fear that somehow our blessings will be less 
if others are blessed too, that if others receive God's gifts, there will not be enough for us. And that insecurity shows up in every aspect of our lives, in our work, in our politics, in our relationships, and yes, in our church. So where does that leave us? Our Wednesday study group is reading Henri Nouwen's book, Beloved, in which he makes the incredible claim that each one of us is God's beloved, that God loves each of us more deeply, more fully than we can imagine. One of the ways that Nouwen fleshes out this concept of our belovedness is by describing us as chosen, actually starts out with the word taken, but then he uses chosen, And he writes, long before your parents admired you or your friends acknowledged your gift or your teachers, colleagues, and employers encouraged you, you were already chosen. The eyes of love had already seen you as precious, as of infinite beauty, as of eternal value. It's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? That each of us has been chosen and loved by God. But then Nouwen writes this. When love chooses, it chooses without making anyone else feel excluded. We touch here a great spiritual mystery. To be chosen that others mean does not mean does not mean that others are rejected. All my memories, he writes of this, of being chosen are being linked to the memories of others not being chosen. In this world, to be chosen simply means to be set apart in contrast to others. And we know what that's like, right? We know what it is to be chosen last for a team or to receive a promotion that could have gone to someone else. But now and insist to be chosen at the beloved of God is something radically different. Instead of excluding others, it includes others. Instead of rejecting others as less valuable, it accepts others in their own uniqueness. It is not a competitive, but a compassionate choice. In other words, God draws circles that are wide enough to include everyone. There are no walls to scale, no boundaries to cross, no conditions to meet, and there is more than enough love to go around. This is the bedrock of my faith, that God's love is there for us always no matter what, for each one of us, always, no matter what. But I must confess that as many times as I say this, I still find myself questioning that love. I still compare myself with others, with my colleagues. And there are times when, yes, I think I'm more deserving than others, And deep in my heart, I'm afraid that when someone else receives accolades, when someone else is chosen, when someone else is seen as special, then I won't be. 
And I find myself asking yet another question, well, if God helps the poor, the captive, the blind, and the impressed, will God be there for me too? Because I don't see myself as one of them. Oh dear. This story does not end well. It does not leave Jesus in a comfortable place. Yes, he manages somehow to pass through the empty crowd unharmed, but I have no doubt that he grieves the hard-heartedness of his people. Yet he will continue to cause offense, to rile up people, to show them, to expose the difficult things in their lives until finally another angry crowd nails him to a cross. This story does not leave us in a comfortable place either. We don't want to see ourselves like the people of Nazareth. And yet, if we are honest with ourselves, we may find that we are just as offended by Jesus as they are. So is there any good news in this story? Yes. For though Jesus persists in offending people, he comes to bring us hope. Notice that he does not walk out cursing or condemning those who would have thrown him off that cliff. He just walks away, leaving them to mull over this encounter, leaving them in the hope that perhaps in time they will come to trust the wonder of God's grace and to accept the unconditional love that Jesus offers everyone, including them, including us. Perhaps with God's help, we can do the same. Amen.